All right, Daniel chapter 6. Back in Daniel this evening. We'll begin at verse 18. Last time we were in the text, Daniel had been thrown into the lion's den. We left him there for the last few weeks. In reality, he was only in the den for maybe 12 hours or so. But you know, this is the most well-known and memorable story in Daniel's life. It's one of the most well-known stories in all the Old Testament. And we note that it is the last story given in the narrative portion of the book. The book of Daniel, as we talked about early on, is split into two halves. The first six chapters are a historical narrative, giving some particular stories from his time in Babylon, uh, many decades. And then the next six chapters are no longer uh, chronological telling, but will sort of bounce around a little bit and focus on the prophetic visions that Daniel received and uh, the interpretation of those visions that he received. Now, by the end of our text tonight, Daniel will be safe. God is once again proven true and powerful, and yet another pagan king will, be, uh, will have become an evangelistic believer in the God of heaven. As we dive back in, we remember that King Darius had been tricked by his princes and governors into condemning Daniel to death. Darius didn't want that to happen, but he was powerless under the law of the Medes and the Persians, and so he sealed Daniel in the den that night, knowing full well that he had just condemned the best man in his kingdom to death. And so we begin in verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. He didn't go home and start fasting and praying in the way we sort of think of it in the Christian mindset. It's not like we see God's people doing in times of crisis in the Bible, whether it was the first century church or the people of Israel. That's not what we're seeing here. This isn't a spiritual thing that he's doing. Darius is sick with worry and anxiety and the guilt of what he's done. We saw that last time, that he was, uh, when he learned that Daniel had gone home and prayed to his God three times a day. It said he was greatly upset, not with, him, not with Daniel, he was upset with himself, and he was uh, consumed with the guilt of what he had done. I find it interesting that Daniel writes these stories more from the other person's perspective each time than his own. You know, of course, Daniel is the author, but think through these last six chapters and some of these famous stories that uh, we're familiar with. More often than not, we see the adventure unfolding from, say, Nebuchadnezzar's viewpoint or from Belshazzar's viewpoint. Here, it's Darius that we're going to spend the evening with, right? We don't spend the night in the cave. We spend the night in the palace uh, seeing what he was going through. And, you know, it makes sense. The purpose of these chapters is to proclaim the unstoppable power of God and to show how he acts on behalf of his people. They are to show how he is in charge of the flow of history, no matter what man sits on the throne, uh, that he raises up nations, that he puts down nations, that the weakest prisoner can be made strong and the strongest king can be made weak. These are the testimonies here of the world-changing, miraculous work of the Lord. And if that's the message you want to proclaim, if that's the story you want to tell, uh, it makes good sense to see it through the eyes of those who were most astonished and surprised by what was happening. You know, Daniel, very consistent man, uh, very admirable, always full of faith and trust, 
We never see him scrambling. We never see him fretting. We never see him wigging out or anything like that. He's consistently calm and collected and confident, just moving through life as a man full of the Spirit and full of God's grace, right? But when we see these stories through Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, we see, were there not three men that we put in the fire? And they have this great moment of realization, right? Or with Belshazzar, we see the knocking of the knees. And all of a sudden, his pagan merrymaking blasphemy is all of a sudden uh, brought to an immediate halt as he uh, is consumed with the fear of the wrath of God. With Darius here, we feel his personal distress in this opening verse of the text. He is sick with worry and with guilt over what he has done. Verse 19, then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. The king must have been exhausted when this happened. We remember he had spent the previous day working until the going down of the sun in a mad rush to save Daniel. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to race against the clock to get some sort of you know, legal paperwork or your taxes or something done. I paid my taxes over a year ago. No, I'm just, nobody gets that. You have to pay your taxes every year. Anyway, so, but I don't know if you've ever been up against a deadline like that, but this is a serious deadline. He had been snared in this trap set by his uh, princes and his governors, and it says he worked until the going down of the sun uh, nonstop with a great fervor to try to find some legal loophole to get Daniel out of this predicament. Uh, he was unable to do so, and so he had to execute judgment on Daniel, and then we see he went home, and what happened? He stayed awake all night. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. He's just all freaked out, and so... Uh, now, we see that he's been up all night with no food and no rest, and I imagine he waited quite some time at his window, right, watching for that first glimmer of the sun on the horizon. It's clear that he is counting down the moments, and of course, he doesn't have a clock going. It would have been quite a long night. He doesn't get to just set his alarm and say, okay, well, hey, Siri, what time is the sun going to rise? Wake me up 10 minutes before that. No, he's sitting there in the dark of his palace and just staring at the horizon, I imagine, waiting for the sun to rise. Why? So that he can then, at the first light of day, one other translation puts it, uh, he, along with his entourage, could run to that chamber of death. The legal requirement would have been satisfied under Persian law, and he could see what had happened to this best man in the empire. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 20, and when he came to the den... He cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Darius cried out in anguish. It shows us clearly he had no real hope that Daniel had survived the night. Why would he? The gods he served didn't actually interact with their people, didn't actually save their people, didn't actually intervene uh, in situations like this. But there he asks a very important question. Is your God able? And the answer was obviously crucial in Daniel's particular situation that day. But it's still a very real question for us, everybody in here tonight. Uh, it has real significance even today. Is your God able? It's not just a question about lions. It's a question for all of our lives. Is God able? You know, if you're a Christian here tonight, you can sort of put yourself in the position of Daniel in this scene and ask it this way. Is God able to deliver you from trouble and from your enemies? Is he or is he not? 
And it's a question we should pose to ourselves. If you're not a Christian here tonight, well, then you can't put yourself in the place of Daniel. You, in this verse, need to put yourself in the place of Darius the king. And remember the backdrop. He's consumed with the guilt of what he's done. He sentenced an absolutely innocent man to a heinous death. And so for him, the question was, is God able not only to deliver Daniel from the lions, but therefore, is God able to deliver you from the guilt of your sin, from the wrong things that you've done? Whether you meant to do them or not, those wrong things condemn you according to the holiness of the God of heaven. Is God able to save you from that guilt? This story and all the others we've been seeing throughout the book, of course, show that the answer to all of those questions is yes. God is able to deliver his people from trouble. He is able to deliver people from their enemies. He is able to deliver sinners from their guilt. And we see that in each case, in each story, including this one, Daniel had this hope. The king is wondering, is God able? And Daniel had the hope that, yes, my God is able. He trusted God to deliver him. And then we've seen that he expected God to intervene and to take action. And so the question then for us as we apply this is, okay, if you're a Christian, do you have that same hope? I mean, do you really live in that belief that God is able to work in your life and to do things and to deliver you and to help you and to intervene in your life in the way that we see him intervening in the life of Daniel and his three friends. Do we have that hope? Daniel did, and he lived his life according to that belief. It wasn't just something that he sort of filed on the shelf or had intellectually. I mean, that's how he lived his life. He lived his life in a trusting, faithful hope that God was going to do things. Not just that God existed, but that God interacted and intervened and had plans for him and power for him. That's the kind of life that Daniel lived. Verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. He did not say, O king, get me out of this pit. Uh, I think that's interesting. He was in no hurry to escape because as far as he was concerned, there was nothing to escape from. Uh, It was the same thing that we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Remember, they walked around in the flames freely despite having the ability to leave the furnace as soon as Nebuchadnezzar called them. Remember, when that scene was happening, it says they were, they were tied up and thrown into the furnace. Next time they look in, they're walking around in the furnace. And then after they see some stuff happening, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, guys, come out. He didn't have to send people to fish them out, which indicates that they could have come out at any moment that they wanted to. But they're hanging out in there with Jesus, right? And so they had the freedom to come out. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, we see Daniel here in the lion's den. It's as if they had nothing to escape from. I don't know if you like animals, if you animal people are here and you're thinking, hey, if, it's like one of those things. Would you hang out with a lion if you knew the lion wasn't going to hurt you? I would. I, I like big animals. That's pretty cool. And uh, so he wasn't concerned. He wasn't worried. And we see he's not afraid. He's not desperate. But m- more importantly, I'd say he's also not angry or resentful. Look at his response to the very man whose foolishness and sacrilegious pride had resulted in this wrongful punishment. He's talking to the guy that put him in the lion's den. He says, oh, king, live forever. He speaks to his sovereign with respect, even affection. There's no bitterness, no frustration. He responds with grace. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, Pray for those who spitefully use you and 
persecute you. A rough verse, right? But those are commands. That's how the Lord demands that we behave if we're his people. He says, this is what I'm not suggesting you do. I'm telling you to do that. It is wholly unnatural to do that uh, for us, right? But luckily, God pours out his supernatural love into our hearts as Christians. And here we see that it is possible to show grace and love even to our persecutors. Look at how Daniel responded. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Daniel's a great example to us in so many ways. Here he demonstrates how to speak the truth in love because he hadn't done anything wrong at all. And you know, he says so. And he doesn't say so in a rude way or in a spiteful way, but he's speaking the truth. And by saying that, it means that the king had done wrong in the situation. If you have two people, the king and Daniel, and he says, hey, I've decided you did something wrong. I'm going to put you in the lion's den. And then it's made clear, hey, you actually didn't do anything wrong. And Daniel says, I, I didn't do anything wrong. And I didn't do anything wrong to you. Well, then all that's left is, is the truth and the reality that you, king, are the one who has done something wrong in the situation. It was wrong for him to sign off on that blasphemous law. It was wrong to send an innocent man to a grisly death. Daniel here is speaking the truth, but he's doing so without malice or animosity. He isn't just saying, ah, it's okay, don't, don't worry about it. I mean, he, he is speaking the truth. He's like, I didn't do anything wrong. And you know it, and I know it, and everybody knows it, but... You know, hey, I have grace for you, and, and we're going to see that he had much more to tell him uh, than just that. Now, when we read this account of what happened with the angel and the lions here in this verse, eventually the question that comes to mind is this. Why didn't the angel simply take Daniel out of the lion's den? After all, wasn't Peter freed by an angel from Herod's prison in the book of Acts? Wasn't Lot rescued by angels out of the city of Sodom? You know, we know angels know how to roll stones away, right? Uh, why not do that in this situation? Why not just have Daniel waltz into the palace 10 seconds or 10 minutes after he had been sealed in there? Wouldn't that have been dramatic? Well, it's helpful to remember the setting of these stories in the book of Daniel. In this book, we see God's people living out their faith in a land that is not their home and being used by God to shine like lights in the dark. In this instance, as in all the others, God was not simply doing something, he's also showing something. Very important. God, when he's working, he's not just doing things, he's showing things, he's revealing himself. He's preaching to the world, right? He was using Daniel's life to answer the king's question, is your God able? And God's response to that question was to show that he was not only able to deliver his servants from the presence of these lions, but more importantly, God was able to deliver Daniel from the power of the lions, which is the greater miracle if we think about it. Uh, for Daniel to quickly escape the den and avoid being eaten or to stay in the lion's den all night untouched and unafraid. Well, I think the latter is the greater miracle if you were to weigh out the miracles on some sort of scale. Now, how does this help us as Christians today? Well, when we look into the word of God, we are told that we have some great enemies stalking us, powerful enemies. We're promised that God is able to deliver us from these enemies. What are the three great enemies in our lives? Well, sin, death, and the devil, the roaring lion himself, right? 
The Bible explains that Jesus Christ has defeated and overcome these enemies, and we, his people, are no longer subject to their power, and we need not fear them. God is able to deliver us from them all, and he will. However, he is not necessarily going to deliver us from the presence of these enemies, but from their power. Here's what I mean. Romans 6.22 tells us we are delivered from sin. It says we are set free from its power, right? That's reality if you're a Christian. But of course, we still live in the presence of sin. We still have you know, that old nature, the old sin nature, the old man that Paul talks about. He says, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things that we do. And so we have that struggle in our own fallen nature. We live in a fallen world. The whole world around us is, uh, has the presence of sin because of the fall of man. And so the Lord says, hey, I've overcome sin, that great enemy. You are freed from its power. But we're not freed from the presence of sin, right? I don't think anybody here has attained sinless perfection. If you think you have, you're, you haven't. <laughs> and so we see that we're delivered from the power of sin. The Lord says, hey, you have the power because of the work of God in your life, because of the Holy Spirit, because you are a new creation, you are set free, you are dead to sin. And yet we still struggle, we still fail, and, and we uh, grow and develop and all of those sorts of things all around us. We have the presence of sin in this fallen world, and yet we are free from its power. Second Timothy 1.10 explains that Jesus Christ has broken the power of death. But of course, unless we're taken home in the rapture, we will all find ourselves in the presence of death one day, right? All of us are, have an appointment with death, if not for the rapture, and yet Despite being in its presence, it will have no power over us. In Acts 26, 18, we're told that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are able to turn from the power of Satan to God. And so uh, Satan may be present in this world. He may come against us, but if we resist him, he will flee from us. We need not fear him. He, we have, he has no power over us because of the work of God. And so each of these enemies are like the lions in that den that night. They are present, but ultimately powerless. And as God's power is revealed through our lives in the presence of these enemies, his truth then goes out as a witness to the world. Paul said this very thing to his son in the faith, Timothy, while perhaps thinking of this very passage in Daniel 6. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. That's the deal. That's what God wants to do in our lives. The message Paul said that the message might be preached fully through me. That's why Daniel stayed in the lion's den that night. Verse 23 continues, Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. You know, the work of God brings joy. In an instant, Darius's guilt is washed away as Daniel is lifted up out of that pit. God's good news, his great work produces joy. And so we should be people who are defined by joy. That doesn't mean difficult things don't happen. That doesn't mean that you know every, we pretend that we're happy all the time. That's not what we're talking about. But when God is working through our lives, joy is 
is a consequence, is being produced. That's what God does. We're told that Daniel was saved because he, quote, believed in his God. Does that mean that Daniel knew he wouldn't die in the den that night? I don't know. Maybe that's what he expected. Surely he was thinking about his three friends who had walked in the fire and not been burned. But then again, this was the same man who God had allowed to become a lifelong POW, right? I, you know, I don't think Daniel could say, I know exactly what God's going to do. Oh, God's not going to let anything bad happen to me. Daniel was taken as a young man from his home, never to see his family again into this foreign, terrible pagan land where day in and day out, people were trying to kill him. People were trying to defile him. People were trying to redefine him. And so uh, I'm not sure. Daniel's mindset to me seems more like Job when he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You know, these great men of the Bible prove that it is possible to have a faith like that. Or a faith like Abraham who said, though he slay my boy, yet will I trust him. Though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the field yield no food, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's the mindset of the believer in the Bible. In verse 24, the joy of the saved is contrasted with the horror of the lost. It says, and the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them, broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Last time we were in this text, we pointed out how these satraps and governors were living examples of those sinners in Proverbs 1 that Solomon talks to us about, who made their plans to trap the innocent, but in the end would fall into that trap themselves. They live it out. Uh, it's not just a theory, it's a true principle that is being exampled here. Now, what we're seeing Darius do, this is the legal custom in those days. That's what happened uh, on a judicial level. It's barbaric to our way of thinking, but it does provide for us a couple of significant warnings to think about. First of all, it is a reminder to anyone who is not saved that a ferocious judgment is coming, one from which you will not escape. They didn't have anything to say. They didn't get any appeal. They couldn't fight against this. It was just like he gave the command, they're done. And it is a tiny snapshot of the kind of judgment that is coming on those who refuse to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If you're not a Christian, then you are not like Daniel who is protected. You're like these men who were in the end destroyed. And you know, these guys did not see it coming. Uh, they were not planning for this. It's interesting, you think about the night each of these three set of characters had, the king, Daniel, and these men. The king had spent his night in the opulent palace, right? The nicest place in all the kingdom. But did you want, would you want to have been the king that night? Sick to your stomach, unable to sleep, consumed by guilt, what good is your palace? What good is the finery? What good are all your attendants? You're crushed by the weight of your sin. And then you have Daniel, right? He spent his night in a stone death chamber, but man, it was a night full of miraculous power. He got to hang out all night with an angel. He got to play around with a bunch of awesome lions. I mean, if you're picking which place to spend your evening, that's the place you spend your evening. What about these guys? Well, I'm sure that they had slept well in their homes that night, right? It seemed as though their ingenious plan had worked. They had pulled one over on the emperor of the whole kingdom. 
They had figured out a way to knock their biggest enemy out of the way, and now there was nothing between them and their own success and their own power. They got what they wanted. They were forever going to get what they wanted, and that's how they went to bed. And then judgment came like a thief in the night. Remember, the king ran to the den at first light of day. It's early, and these guys are suddenly awakened by the palace guards who drag them away to be destroyed. Now, the second warning we find in verse 24 is this. Your sin has consequences. My sin has consequences. That's true for all of us. Whether you're a Christian here tonight or not, sin has consequences. When we do not go God's way, that action ripples out one way or another into the lives around us, the lives of our families, the lives of our kids, into our community. And sin always brings destruction and death. Think about the the societal governmental impact of this. This is all of the governors and rulers of all of the regions of Babylon, like 127 guys. There were three presidents, Daniel was one of them, and then 120 satraps, and so like 123, 122 guys, however many, and all of them are just gone like that. You got a real problem on the governmental level. I mean, this has an impact in the community. And these families were impacted and their wider families were impacted. Uh, It's terrible. I mean, we're happy as readers to sort of see these characters get what they deserved, right? As readers, we think, yeah, you had it coming. Um, But remember how all this started. It just came out of simple selfishness and jealousy. These guys didn't wake up one day and say, how can I murder someone today? I'd love to murder someone and have it backfire on me so that me and my wife and my children are also murdered. That wasn't the plan at all. They just gave in to selfishness and jealousy. That's uh, what they did. They didn't like that Daniel was in charge. And you know, we think about this as we're applying it to our lives and we think, okay, on paper, maybe a sin like envy doesn't seem like a big deal. But look where it ends up. When sinful desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death, the New Testament says. Now, we need to believe that. And that's not, just, that's not a message for just unbelieving people. Oh, when unbelieving people sin, it brings forth death. James is talking to believers. And he says, listen, you need to resist temptation. You need to live a holy life. When sinful desire has conceived, it's going to give birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it is going to bring forth death. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in isolation. That ripples out to the lives around you, sometimes with devastating, catastrophic Uh, consequences in the lives of others. The last four verses of the chapter here, we have a little gospel tract that Darius felt compelled to write and send throughout his kingdom. Like Nebuchadnezzar before him a few chapters ago, Darius shows how the work of God inspires proclamation. We read about it in Psalm 105, right? Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, talk of all his wondrous works. We see that when God interacted with Darius, when God interacted with Nebuchadnezzar, what did they do? They said, we got to get this message out and became evangelistic in the way they behaved. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. This was a message not just for Jews, not just for Medo-Persians. It was for everyone everywhere. Anyone who will read this, this message is for you. Verse 26, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Hold there. 
On first read, it feels a little bit authoritarian, right? We think, hey, what's up with that? But you know what? That's, just remember what else we read. This is actually in line with what we read in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 2.11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Darius had been humbled. Earlier, he had put himself in the place of God, right? Saying that everyone had to pray for him for a month. Now he's inviting his whole kingdom to sit back and consider the awesomeness of this one true living God. And we notice in his tract here, it's not just a God, but there is a personal aspect to him, the God of Daniel. This is a God of personal relationship, a God that can be connected with individuals. For you tonight, think of this awesome God who does things like this. Is he simply the God of the Bible in your thinking? Or is he your God personally? Yes, he's the God who reveals himself in the Bible, but he's my God. That's a good question for us to think through as we meditate on the Lord. Is he the God you serve and worship and trust? If so, we are to go on serving him in fear and trembling. According to Paul, that's the Christian way of life. That's what he told the Philippians. And he told the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And so Paul, if you talk to him, he's like, yeah, this is the Christian way of life, that we consider the awesomeness of God and that we move forward in fear and trembling, in spiritual humility, in reliance on the Lord, respecting him, reverencing him, awing him, not wanting to sin against him. Darius goes on to make some wonderful statements about God. The rest of verse 26 says, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. These are not just run-of-the-mill ovations. Darius and Daniel have been talking. I like this a lot. You see, in Daniel 7, we haven't gotten there yet, but in Daniel 7, we are going to learn about a prophetic vision that Daniel had back during Belshazzar's reign. Belshazzar was the king of Babylon before Darius. And in that vision, Daniel is told specifically about the Son of Man, whose kingdom and dominion are everlasting. Darius is parroting back what Daniel was told in this prophetic vision. And so it's clear that Daniel has shared this information, which ultimately, by the way, includes the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire. That's part of the prophetic visions that Daniel received. He says, hey, by the way, the Grecian Empire is going to come and wipe out you Medo-Persians. And Daniel shared that with Darius, and Darius then went and wrote this tract, not only praising God for his power, but believing in the prophecy that had been revealed and saying, hey, people need to know about this. The Lord's coming kingdom is absolutely real. It is absolutely on the way. We need to know it. We need to think about it. And we need to tell people about it. Verse 27, he delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. God is still the same. He's no less strong, no less faithful, no less active. He continues to work through us and reveal himself and impact this world. And you and I are invited to sign on and be a part of verse 27. Look at the things God does. And he says, yeah, you're my body on the earth now. You, you want to be a part of this? You want to be a part of my kingdom work? You want me to use your life and serve me and be, you know, have my glory shine through you? Who wants, who wants in? That's an astounding thing to think about. 
Verse 28, so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The term prospered there can, be, can mean to be promoted. Bible dictionaries also define it this way, to make progress or the advancement in the construction of a building. Both of those are great images for us to think about devotionally this evening. You know, probably none of us are going to be promoted to the office of vice president in here tonight, maybe. Uh, probably not. Daniel was. He was going to be put overall, effectively, the administration of the empire. It had already happened before under Nebuchadnezzar. It was going to happen again. But still, his life is a wonderful example of how God wants to work through his people and how we, as his servants, can continue to progress. We can continue to be built up in our faith. We can prosper in that way, not prosper in some sad material wealth sense. That's not what God's talking about. He says, hey, I want you to progress, like the advancement and the construction of a building. And so wherever you find yourself, whether you're in a hostile work environment or a peaceful one, whether you're surrounded by your friends or by murderous conspirators, we know the following things to be true. First, this is not our forever home. Daniel was a stranger in Babylon, right? We are strangers on this earth. There is a much greater aspect to our lives than whatever temporal city we find ourselves in. Second, we know that God has power, not just generically, but personally for us. He is able and he is our God. And what great thing might the Lord want to do in us in the coming days and weeks? In these narrative chapters of Daniel, we've seen that even the small parts of life can be used for amazing purposes in God's hands. Things like Daniel's prayer life, things like the demeanor of his face, things like even his diet. They were all used to preach the message and produce power in the hands of God. And the living God intends to do this kind of work through our lives as well. Daniel's not different than us. Daniel was not in a separate class of people God really cared about and God really wanted to use, and the rest of us are just an audience to watch him do that. God says, this is what I want to do through all of my people, through your life. In fact, Daniel would speak to us and say, you guys are in a better position than I was because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have the church. You are the body of Christ. You, are, you have access to things that we did not have access to. You have a revelation of the Messiah the way we didn't have. Daniel would be envious of us uh, on a spiritual level. And so we're not different than him. He's an example for us of the kinds of things God wants to do. The living God intends to do this stuff through our lives. How do we connect and cooperate with those intentions? Through faith. That was the key. Daniel's faith and his spirit-filled life made him the hero that inspires us on these pages. He knew God. He knew his word. And Daniel believed with a real faithful trust. And the rest was the history that we've read here. It's just the story of what God did. Daniel didn't do any of this stuff. He's just like sitting around all the time and this stuff is happening and he's like, I trust the Lord. Let's see what God wants to do. And then all of this stuff is happening. Kingdoms are being changed and, and lives are being changed and this power is going out, not because Daniel thought, how can I make you know, all this stuff happen? He's just living a faithful life, trusting the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do here? What should I do in this situation? He did it as a young man, he did it as an old man, he did it all the time. He knew God, he knew his word, he believed. And the rest is just the story of God doing what God still wants to do for you and for me and for all who believe, amen.